Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Abe Singh, a member of the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology in the Tossig Cancer Institute. He's here today to talk to us about identifying risk factors for secondary malignancy in breast cancer survivors, specifically work that was presented at the American Society of Hematology meeting. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me over, Dr. Shepard. Glad to be here today. Absolutely. So um, give us a little bit of an idea. What do you do here at the Cleveland Clinic? So uh, I'm fairly new, so I started in August of 2021. I am part of the Leukemia and Myeloid Disorders Program here at the clinic. Uh, in terms of my clinical focus, I see patients with any acute or chronic leukemias. Uh, these are disorders of clonal expansion, uh, so as such, uh, interested in precursor states as well, so focusing on the other side of the spectrum, which is preventive aspect of it as well. Uh, so from that standpoint, this is this entity, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, or we call it CHIP, uh, which is my research focus. So I had the CHIP clinic here at the Cleveland Clinic, and then uh, focus my research and clinical time as part of the CHIP clinic as well. Excellent. So, so we're going to talk a little bit about some research and risk factors and things, and maybe we'll double back and get an update on the CHIP clinic. We've had a previous episode where we talked about the CHIP clinic, so maybe uh, just a little bit of a, a quick overview at the end. So to start out, we're going to talk about some research that was presented about determining risks for secondary malignancies. Tell us a little bit, just a, a wide range of people that might be listening in, tell us a little bit about this whole concept of secondary malignancies in patients who have been treated for a cancer? So it's very common, so patients who have prior solid malignancy or a hematological malignancy, they can go on to develop a secondary malignancy. Some of it could be because uh, cancer is a diagnosis of aging population, so they are at risk of uh, secondary cancer diagnosis. There are some germline predispositions. There are other identified risk factors, uh, smoking being one, obesity, an emerging one, and then uh, also, any uh, exposure to chemotherapy and radiation therapy that increases the risk of secondary malignancies. So most patients end up receiving, uh, with advanced stages, some sort of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, and they go on to this period of survivorship during which they are at risk of acquiring another malignancy. Not everyone who receives this chemotherapy or radiation therapy goes on to develop this outcome, uh, which has a poor prognosis overall. About 10% or less go on to develop uh, therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Uh, so that's kind of where we were thinking that not everyone exposed to chemotherapy radiation therapy goes on to develop a secondary malignancy. So why is that some people do develop it and others do not? So that was kind of uh, how the idea started. All right. We'll talk about that in a second. Just to kind of think about the our current state, you looked at breast cancer, and most patients with breast cancer are going to have an initial therapy that is chemotherapy. But do you think there's going to be changes in the future, like as we do more targeted therapies, genomic therapies, immunotherapies? Do we think that maybe we'll see less treatment-related toxicities like malignancies um, in the future? Yes, so so that brings me to some of my work that I actually did in my FDUing fellowship using a large SEER database. So in that analysis, what we looked at is we did uh, 
according to time period how the risk of secondary malignancies is changing. And uh, surprisingly, uh, what we found was in the era of immunotherapy and targeted therapies, impact has been profound in the last 10 years, like melanoma and renal cell carcinoma. We saw that actually the risk of secondary acute myeloid leukemia is on the downtrend. But there was some interesting pattern to the increased risk of MDS, and there are certain investigations that are we doing right now so to see why that might be. But certainly the risk of acute myeloid leukemia is going down with the advent of newer therapies. So maybe a, a hematologic malignancy, just a different problem. Yes, 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 exactly. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the work with these breast cancer patients. It was a, it was a large population that was examined. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that was. Yes, so therapy-related myeloneoplasms, about 10% of patients uh, uh, develop uh, after their first diagnosis of primary malignancy, they're exposed to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Many of them enjoy survivorship without any bad outcomes, but TMN can be one worse outcome, and that was kind of the motivation to uh, do this analysis. Uh, Using a large, large database, we looked at around upward of 230,000 patients, uh, female breast cancer patients, and we looked at variety of risk factors and what might uh, increase their risk of having that transformation where some of these patients do not develop any secondary malignancy and a subgroup of patients go on to develop these malignancies after exposure to chemoradiation therapy. And so what were some of the things that, that seemed to be a risk factor? Yeah, so we started off uh, looking at a variety of risk factors, some of them which are well-established, like we discussed, advancing age, smoking, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. In addition, we looked at some of the factors, risk factors, which are uh, where the associations are less well-defined or there's some ambiguity that exists, those being history of autoimmunity, uh, uh, growth factor, or GCSF exposure, so to speak. And then some other comorbidities that have been associated with therapy-related myeloneoplasms. These are the clonal hematopoiesis-associated comorbidities. So these are the cardiovascular disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, prior organ transplant. So these were all the risk factors that we looked at in these patients of, uh, with breast cancer, primary breast cancer. So I was a little surprised with the growth factor being a risk. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, there's been a lot of back and forth with the growth factor. Uh, And I think uh, historically what we've uh, kind of decided upon is that although there might be some increased risk, but overall survival benefit is so much in solid malignancies that uh, use of GCSF is supported to to use it in a prophylactic manner to prevent prolonged neutropenia and and use dose-dense chemotherapy. So what we saw in this analysis was that if there was GCSF exposure, there was a threefold increase in risk of therapy-related myeloneoplasms. So that's uh, that's not insignificant, but like you say, it's uh, you know if you're going to be using something and you don't want to get neutropenic fever, but at the same time you might have an increased risk. Increased risk, yes. Is there um, is there a thought that from a mechanistic standpoint that we should come up with better ways yeah. to stimulate bone marrow? So I think I think it's a, probably how I am thinking about is that there's pre-existing uh, clonal mutations or the precursor state or clonal hematopoiesis of independent potential. So are we in a way stimulating the marrow and more so the chip clones 
to get bigger in size over the course of one's lifetime that they're at increased risk. So that's something that needs to be studied mechanistically and at a molecular level to understand this phenomenon better. We've done a few more analyses and then uh, we've, we're seeing a consistent trend not only across breast cancer, but we've looked at all the five major ca cancers diagnosed in US. More than a million people get diagnosed with these cancers uh, in a year in the United States. So breast, lung, bladder, GI cancers, prostate, and this risk is significant all across the board for all these cancers. And so again, that, I guess, considering the growth factors are primarily associated with chemotherapy, I guess, as, as we move away from chemo, I guess this might kind of solve itself, but it sound, seems like a pretty significant issue. Yes, absolutely. So as we won't be using it as much with the targeted therapies or the immune modulatory therapies, uh, that risk hopefully will go down. So in this particular analysis, you also noticed um, a, a sort of an increased risk uh, in patients with autoimmune conditions uh, in terms of developing secondary hemolignancies. Tell us a little bit about that. The patients who had autoimmune conditions prior, they were at increased risk of uh, uh, developing therapy-related myeloneoplasms. So smaller studies have looked at it before, but we looked at a very large population, and this result has stayed consistent throughout uh, other cancer types as well. And this is true, this holds strong and true even without chemotherapy exposure. So there's baseline risk with autoimmunity, but when we add chemotherapy, radiation therapy on top of that, that risk goes, for example, from threefold to eightfold. So that's something that, uh, that uh, is going to be very important to learn and understand how molecular uh, events happen in autoimmunity and how they uh, lead to this progression to therapy-related myeloneoplasm. And is there a thought that this is related to immune surveillance, or is it too early to know? So uh, there is uh, certainly, so again, there's the specific mutations that are thought to be immune-provoked or inflammatory clones, so to speak. So DNMT3A, TAT2 mutations are the two mutations that have been associated with inflammation, uh, and then they increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. So certainly there's some connection there. There's some connection with T-cell activity and those clones. So the, a lot needs to be unraveled, so uh, a lot needs to be learned. But that's, that's something that's really intriguing and interesting we're trying to figure out. We think about um, you. You mentioned like the the chip clones and things. Are are there any particular um, or particular abnormalities that sort of seem to fall in line with that increased risk of Have we gotten to the point where we could say, well, these are the ones that the bad actors, and and then I guess does that translate into are we managing those patients differently from a, a monitoring screening standpoint? Yes, yes. So that that actually is the eventual goal. Uh, it's uh, steps towards that direction, but we haven't reached there yet. So certainly uh, the bad actors being the TP53 mutations and another one which was another of our work which we did in relation to uh, this new novel therapy, PRRT, not novel anymore, uh, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy uh, that's used in neuroendocrine tumors. So there's this clone a PPM1D mutation. So it's it acts in the same pathway as the TP53 mutation. And if there is presence of those mutations, there seems to be an increased risk of therapy related myeloid neoplasms down the line. So certainly a lot of room for prevention, screening, and to devise those strategies once we have better molecular understanding of these processes. And I guess if we get to the point where we understand what some of those um, kind of bad actor clones are, is that maybe going to be a trigger for what types of therapies patients get to try to avoid sort of stimulating that, that, that response downstream? Is that, is that a goal as well? 
Yes, a lot needs to be uh, figured out in that standpoint, but a particular example that I can think of is uh, someone with the early stage breast cancer who had a lumpectomy uh, and planned for radiation therapy, and then uh, when we plug in numbers into some sort of risk calculator to see how much adjuvant chemotherapy might add to the overall survival benefit. And if that survival benefit is marginal, and we have screening strategies that are set up to look for any chip mutation, so to speak. So if there's a TP53 clone, maybe that'll be a reason to forego chemotherapy in that patient and prevent something bad from happening down the line. So that's how I foresee. So we think about like the oncotype testing and things, incorporating more what we learn about chip technology into that those sorts of screenings. So th this particular analysis that looked at breast cancer, are there any other cancers, and, and you mentioned like a growth factor, like with other f major cancers, any other like big surprises when you look at other tumor types? I mean, breast cancer, this is, you know, 230,000 patients. Any surprises from the other types of cancers? So, yeah, so uh, all cancers, there seems to be an increased risk, and it's pretty significant, uh, bit, big numbers, despite, like, so the smallest cohort that we looked at was the cohort for uh, indolent and aggressive lymphomas, where GCSF is also used as well, and it seems uh, there is also a pretty significant increase in therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Similarly, in bladder cancer as well, any GCSF exposure increases the risk three to fourfold in that popula patient population as well. And so I guess uh, the, the question people, people that may have been treated with a breast cancer find out, you know, about this sort of uh, this risk and they're, of course, going to be concerned. What what should they be thinking about? Like if uh, an oncologist might be listening and says, hmm, what should I be doing to monitor my patients? What what recommendations can you make? So I think we're still in a stage where we're learning a lot of things. I think uh, we need to understand this better at a molecular level. There's certainly a population level signal for this. If there is an opportunity to avoid GCSF exposure, that might be the strategy to go. But as of now, we haven't gathered enough data to say for sure that this needs to stop right now or anything like that. Because there's certainly benefit that has been shown in other larger studies for with the use of GCSF and there's survival benefit there as well. So certainly we haven't gathered any data. I think how it can be used in a more precise manner in the era of precision medicine is that if we have identified those clones prior to the chemo, uh, in that setting, there may be opportunity to forego certain therapies and then just go from there. But I think there's still things to be figured out at this point. And I guess the things to be figured out can be um, partially through things like the chip clinic, right? So that's how we, we might be able to learn more about the molecular basis. So um, give us a little bit of an overview about what chip clinic is and, and really back to that patients that might be out there in the community somewhere saying, hey, you know, what is my risk? You know, how, how likely is that I'm going to get a heme malignancy? Tell us a little bit about how the CHIP clinic might be able to, to monitor patients. Yes, so CHIP clinic is a large effort that is uh, being started at several major uh, cancer centers, and it's up and running at, at uh, numerous cancer centers around the United States. Uh, we're lucky to have CHIP clinic here at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, we're up to 180 patients which have been enrolled onto this protocol. And we're focusing currently on patients who are breast cancer survivors. Uh, they're not on any chemotherapy or radiation therapy currently, uh, and also head and neck survivors. These patients get next-generation sequencing testing to look for any clonal mutations at the 
time of enrollment, and they're followed each year for 10 years to see how these clonal trajectories evolve over time in response to various therapies. Some of this, these patients have had surgery alone, some of these patients have had only radiation, and some of these patients have had chemotherapy or combination of all. And there, there are patients that we are now identifying after this population-level data that have been exposed to GCSF as well. So there's a lot to learn from all these treatments and how molecular signatures may differ when differentiating between patients who've just received surgery versus chemotherapy or combination of a few drugs. So, so that's something that we're learning through the CHIP clinic. Some of the findings we're excited are going to be presented at ASCO this year from our CHIP clinic, the Cleveland Clinic experience uh, as a discussion session. Uh, certain things that have came out in terms of that uh, putative molecular mutations that are uh, associated with uh, low blood counts that will be presenting at ASCO this year. Excellent. And then it's, you mentioned, you know, sequencing, you know, clinical, getting clinical information, but it's really a yearly follow-up. So if somebody wants to get involved, it's um, it's relatively little sort of outlay of, of, of effort, right? So um, it sounds like it's a pretty easy thing for people to kind of get a check-in, contribute to science and learn a little bit about what uh, the risks might be. Risks might be, yes, absolutely. So we have a wonderful team that works uh, here uh, for the CHIP clinic. Uh, they make it really easy for our patients. The, the first effort is the enrollment. They get the blood test done. And then we just try to coordinate their visits when they're actually coming here for their visits. So there's no extra uh, visits. There's no extra draws. So that, that, that's how it's very streamlined for them. For this. So not burdensome or onerous for the patients at all. Excellent. What else do you find most exciting on the horizon? What, uh, where, where do you think this is all going to take us in the end? So I think science has advanced so much in the last decade or so. We're moved away. We're trying to find newer therapies, target therapies, immunotherapies, and we're doing great in terms of improving survivals, quality of life for our patients. But I think where we might have a little more room to expand and grow is towards the preventive side of things. So my passion is blood cancer prevention. I'm internal medicine and preventive medicine trained. So this CHIP clinic is an important thing for us here at the clinic to be at the forefront of uh, preventive medicine and preventing things from happening so we can help our patients enjoy a better quality of life and then improve survival outcomes. And as you, uh, as you mentioned previously, a lot of this focus is sort of in survivorship, but you know we may learn more and actually be moving this upstream so that we actually can tailor therapies accordingly. Absolutely, that is the goal. So we're trying to uh, enter into this phase of expansion where we'll be exactly how you mentioned, we'll, we'll try to go to the upfront setting. So we're able to capture mutations prior to any exposure and then uh, monitor clonal evolution over time in this uh, multi-year study. And also we're trying to be cognizant of the fact that we have a lot of patients who go to our region as well. So we're trying to expand to all our regional sites as well so that our patients can benefit in our regional sites as well. Well, that's great. So that's uh, some outstanding work. Appreciate all you're doing in this area. And thanks for giving us some great insights today. Thank you so much, Dr. Shepard, for your kind words, for having me over. This was wonderful. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.